Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Well, good evening, Grace. Speaking of Psalm 103, there is someone in this room whose initials are Michelle Winger, who a year or so ago memorized Psalm 103. And she kept telling us in staff meeting and kept showing us up, and I, I loved that. That was great. So uh, when you need some help, talk to her about that, and you'll have some fun. I do want to, before we get started, I want to make some comments about the worldview survey that you all took uh, last week. The the fun answers were when I put what are the most common worldviews in the U.S. Shopping, coffeeing, and chatting got two votes. You, you know, and I, I was kind of debating with myself. How? What do I make out of that? But I thought at least it was it was funny, and I was also impressed. Uh, very many of you, several of you, uh, did gave good, thoughtful answers on. Uh, the back when I was asking the question specifically towards what is your worldview, and uh, I am happy that uh, not everything that I'm saying is is going to be in vain. So we're looking forward to it. But right now, uh, let's go ahead and talk to the God who gives us the world to view. And Lord Jesus, we do come before you because you are worthy of all our attention. And God, we recognize that the world looks at your world entirely wrongly. And God, we want in this week and in the following weeks to come to understand not only what they are saying and how it is wrong, but also what we can say in response to give glory to your name. Jesus, I pray that you would be with us here and that you'd open our minds and open our hearts so that we can understand you better and therefore uh, make you more well-known. And we give you all the praise and all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I want to remind you of our theme verse for these next several weeks, and we take it out of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul writes to the Colossians, See to it. Pay attention. Work at this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, last week, we spent uh, some time introducing the subject, oh, and the statement I took from Gordon Fee, from that verse is God is in the process of overturning world systems. And that's what we are about in these weeks. Again, we're taking a little break away from uh, our normal preaching on Sunday nights, and we're spending some time teaching more specifically because we want to understand the world that we live in so that we can then bring God's word to bear. And fear not, we will get into God's Word even tonight. So last week, we spent some time introducing the whole concept of worldview. And I'm not going to go as carefully through the definition tonight as we did last week, but I want to look at it again 
uh, what James Shire is calling this worldview. And he says, a worldview is a commitment. Now, I stressed this last week. It's a decision. It's a part of the will, more even so than the brain. That's important to get. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story. And in fact, in the culture we live in, it's most often expressed in stories, particularly movies, novels, various other things. Or a set of presuppositions. Now, a presupposition is an assumption. It's something you decide beforehand, which, in fact, may be true. It may be partially true, or it may be entirely false. But these presuppositions are those which we hold. And get this, a lot of our presuppositions are unconscious. We're not thinking about it. In fact, what makes worldviews so powerful is most of the time we're not thinking about it. I used my glasses last week as an example. They're the lenses that we look through. And if you've ever worn glasses or contacts, most of the time you're not thinking about what's in or on your eye. You're thinking about what you're seeing. And that's what this worldview does. And unfortunately, or fortunately in the Christian Uh, If a consistent Christian worldview is held, it's fortunate that it's unconscious. And these worldviews can be held consistently or inconsistently. But nevertheless, these are presuppositions or assumptions about the basic constitution of reality. What is really real? We're going to get to that again in a moment. And that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. The worldview colors everything. I cannot emphasize this enough. And whether you like the word or not really doesn't matter. Whether it's because it is, it just, it's the reality of how we see our world. Now, last week we spent the second half of the lesson talking about what is the one of two most prominent worldviews that we find in the West. And we talked about that as naturalism. And naturalism, if you sum it up into one sentence, we gave a good one uh, last week, matter exists eternally and is all there is. The only thing that exists in a naturalistic worldview is matter and energy and the interaction of those two things. Now, we talked about some of the philosophical implications of that last week, and we talked in several points about why that just doesn't pan out in how we actually experience the world. Today, we're going to go over territory that I think most of you will find much more comfortable because what I want to do is tease out some of the philosophical implications of the Bible. And what does the Bible then teach about the world? Now, next week, we're going to go into the second of the two most prominent worldviews that you find in the West. And this one is found uh, prominently also in the East, although in a slightly different form. And it's what's called postmodernism. Whenever you've heard something along the lines of, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. Or if you've ever heard something like, well, it's all relative. 
those are coming from a decidedly non-Christian point of view. And we're going to talk about some of the implications of that. But what I want to do is I want to go over the notes uh, that hopefully you picked up from the back of the room and uh, answer eight questions that every worldview must answer. Does anybody notice anything funny about that statement? Last week I had seven on there. Here's, here's the problem. I had an old version of the book, and he only had seven questions, but when I got the brand new one last Sunday or Saturday, it has eight questions. So I'm like, oh, great. Everybody's going to think I'm not doing my homework. I really am. Dr. Moreland, if you're listening to this, I really did do my homework. That's my professor that, at school. Uh, but we're going to look at eight questions that every worldview must answer. And the first one is, what is prime reality? What is the really real? Now, again, at this point, we're going to go over what we learn uh, as Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. So we're going to go through these words uh, a little bit slowly so we get it. No, I'm sorry, go back. There we go. Prime reality, or the really real, is the infinite personal God. I want to stop there. Most of you, when you filled out your surveys last week, got that answer correct. And I'm not surprised. Because God is the one who created everything. I'm going to fish for an amen for that. Okay, good. All right. It's the infinite personal God. But we need to add something to that, don't we? Because God is one of these dime a dozen words People just kind of throw it out and they call all kinds of things God. But we're talking about the God as he is revealed in the Holy Scripture, the Bible. And this God is triune. He is a Trinitarian God, meaning there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And these three persons eternally exist in one being God, the Godhead. And so... God is triune. He is transcendent and imminent. Now, this may take a little bit of explaining. Uh, to be imminent means to be present, means to be here. It means to be nearby. To be transcendent means something totally other, something totally different, something not exactly like what we've experienced. We have an amazing God, and this amazing God is one who transcends everything that we can possibly know. And he is here. So when Bette Midler sang in the 80s or 90s, whenever it was, God is watching you from a distance, she was half right. God is watching from a distance because he is far above. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts, says the Lord of hosts. But he is also with us. And that's why my favorite promise that's repeated in so many different ways throughout Scripture is the Lord your God is with you. The Lord is my shepherd. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So God is triune. He's both transcendent, he's far above, and he's imminent. He is with us. He is omniscient. God knows all true facts. God knows everything that is true. And I'm not going to get into it again if you want to talk about it. We can also talk about the fact that God also knows all potential facts. Ooh, that'll set some of your minds spinning. If you want to talk about that, let's do that later. He is sovereign. God is in absolute control of everything. God is sovereign. He is the Lord of all. Uh, Now, depending on what kind of church tradition you come from, that's going to mean one thing or maybe slightly another. But what most Christians will agree on is that God is in control of those who he knows those who will be saved. Now, what knows means uh, is up for debate in some. Here at Grace, we're right. Thank you. Okay, you're still awake. I had to make sure you were awake. Uh, And we believe that God, in fact, chooses uh, those who will be saved. But we can talk again about that. And lastly, under Shire's definition, uh, he is also good. God is a good God. So what is prime reality? What is the really real, the infinite, personal, triune God that we read about in Scripture? Now, the second question that we addressed started last week about a worldview, that a worldview must answer, is what is the nature of external reality? That is, the world around us. One thing I'm not going to get into in every single question, because this would take a lot longer than half hour, 45 minutes gives us time for, is every single one of these questions and every single one of these statements are questioned in ways that most rational, reasonable human beings would find just absolutely absurd. And it, it yeah, thank you for laughing. It is absurd. The, some of the things that philosophers will say because they want to publish a book. In fact, I'm convinced a lot of secular philosophy is just written because they figure if we write enough words down, we don't have to believe what we know is true. Uh, so, And part of our job that we're going to school about is so that we can refute them to show them the folly of what they're saying. But many will deny that there is any reality outside of the self or outside the mind. Some will go a step closer to reality and say, well, nothing exists exists outside of the social construct or what people decide. And usually they'll couch that in slightly different terms and they'll say, what they'll say is external reality cannot be known outside of uh, the social construct. What I want to say, if that's what you believe, walk to the top of Half Dome and take a step. Then you'll find out how quickly you're wrong. But let's get back this time to what the Bible is saying. External reality is the cosmos. It's everything that is created wherever and whenever it is. And this cosmos is created by God ex nihilo. Ex nihilo simply means out of nothing. I don't know why Shire didn't just put out of nothing, but he wanted to put the Latin in there. And God created this cosmos out of nothing to operate with a uniformity of cause and effect. Now, I want to 
stop here because last week I noted something uh, and I told you to pay attention because you'll see how significant this is. In last week's definition, uh, according to the naturalist, the cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. And I told you that that statement carries an enormous weight. And not only is it a big statement, but it is completely wrong. And the difference between the two that operates in a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system or a open system, that one word makes all the difference. And we talked about last week the fact that a closed system is one in which nothing else is added. There's, there's nothing from the outside. And something that Christians have criticized evolutionists about is they say, well, if you believe in a closed system, then how did plants and animals evolve? Now, the evolutionist, the naturalist, is going to respond very confidently to that. And he's going to say, well, Earth is not a closed system because it has the sun inputting energy, which creates uh, complexity, which leads to life. Now, before you go out and say that Pastor Greg's an evolutionist, I am not an evolutionist. But what I'm saying is that's his response. A closed system, when they use it, is that the universe, the physical universe, matter and energy is all that exists, and there's nothing ordering it. But what we say, what the Bible teaches, is that this uh, created cosmos operates with the uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. We believe that there is a designer. We believe that there is one who organizes and who brings something into this matter and energy which exists in the universe. And that has only been proven in the last 50 years or so. And, and this, is, this is really fantastic. God's word has been proven again. That, I know that shocks everybody in this room. But the third element that exists in the physical universe is information. And we spent some time talking about the DNA last week and how every living thing has matter, it has energy, and it has this stuff called information. Okay, so I want you to get the difference between a closed system and an open system. A closed system says nothing from the outside comes in. That's how they view the universe. An open system, which is what believers talk about, we believe in a grand designer, a God who created the universe and puts into it. Now, what is a human being? The third question that every worldview must answer is, what is a human being? And I've been quoting from James Shire in his book, uh, The Universe Next Door, the 2004 version. But his definition, his an- the first answer to this question, I wasn't very comfortable with. And so I'm just giving you mine because I'm the one up here. A human being is someone who is created in the image of God. Now, that is a mouthful. We get that from Genesis 1, 26, and 27. And 
that is where God created us. And he specifically says he did so, he created us in his image. So what does that mean? Now, I want to stop here for a second because I don't want you to think that I believe that this is the end-all, be-all definition. There's numerous different ways of explaining this reality, and this definition certainly is, is not incorporating all of what it means to be created in the image of God. But I think it comes pretty close, or at least close enough for what we're doing. And the first part of the definition of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are persons. We're not, we're not people. We are people, but each individual is a person. And that is powerfully significant because when you get to the spirit and understanding what spirit is, remember, matter, energy, we are going to add to that spirit. Spirit is un bodily, personal power. And this unbodily, personal power exists in God, in angels, and in every single human being that's ever lived in our soul or our spirit. I'm not going to get into the distinctions about that at all right now. But the point is, is that we are persons, and that is the prime reality that makes us like God is because he is also a person. But we are those who are creative, we belong in community, and we choose. I think that these are three elements that are absolutely foundational to what it means to be a person uh, and one who is created in the image of God. And by the way, uh, if you want to talk about the abortion issue, I can't get into that right now, but the personhood argument is the number one argument where uh, the, the pro-life uh, direction is going. And if you want to talk about that, we can. Now, Shire continues under his heading, What is a Human Being? And he then goes from not only what is a human being, but... Uh, the next step, which is biblical, about what a human being does. And that is, human beings were created good. That's important to get in Eden. But through the fall, the image of God became defaced. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. Uh, It wasn't destroyed. It was defaced. It was altered in a very fundamental way though not so ruined as not to be capable of restoration. Through the work, like angels were, for example, those who rebelled against God, uh, those were ruined. They are incapable of restoration. Through the work of Christ, God redeemed humanity. He bought us back from the slave market of sin and began the process of restoring people to goodness, through any gi- though any given person may choose to reject that redemption. We believe that we were created good. Now, unfortunately, we were born sinful. We are sinners. And if you want to, I think the best explanation of that is why do you think babies are sinners? Well, it's because if you have two dogs, what procreation are they going to have? They're going to have a dog. If you have two kangaroos, what are they going to have? They're going to have little joeys. But the point is, is that when Adam and Eve, after they sin, they 
became fallen human beings. The only uh, prodigy that they could have is also fallen human beings. So that we choose of, um, we will choose to sin. We are sinners and we choose to sin. And that means that we need redemption. Again, we're talking about what are the essential elements of what it means to have a Christian worldview. If you can understand these things, then you will, and you believe them, as far as they're biblical, then you will be, you will have a Christian worldview. This is a question that almost everybody got right. Uh, What happens to person at death? For each, uh, number four, For each person, death is either the gate to life with God and his people or the gate to eternal separation from the only thing that will ultimately fulfill human aspirations. I I would have worded it a little differently than Shire did. Uh, I would have said uh, the gate to eternal separation from the only person, capital P, that will ultimately fulfill. But I also would have said is the source of life. Uh, But I don't think there's any question here about what that means. Number five, why is it possible to know anything at all? I'm going to camp here for another second because the fruit of naturalism that we looked at last week is going to come ripe next week when we look at postmodernism. If you take an essentially naturalistic point of view, if you believe that there is only matter and energy, and there's nothing else, this is important, then there is no possibility for reliable knowledge. It's impossible. And primarily because if that's true, if there's only random bouncing around inside my brains, how do I know that the random bouncing around inside my brains right now is right? And right now is right. Now that it just seems that strikes us as ridiculous. Wait, you can't say that, Greg. No one actually believes that. You would be surprised. Read some of the books I have on my bookshelf at home. But you're also right. When you talk to these naturalists, when you talk to Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan, although he is now no longer a naturalist, when you talk to these people, they, they're going to say, no, well, of course, I'm thinking. I, I know that what I'm thinking is right because we have the rules of logic. We have these things. No, you can't do that because you're borrowing from my worldview that gives me reason to believe that I can actually think. Again, I just want to stress, if you're looking at these questions and you think, Greg, this is ridiculous, Why is it possible to know anything at all? Because I know. You're right. If that's where you're coming from, but let me give you a little bit more to add to that when someone asks you. Because your postmodernist friends are going to push you on this. And we're we're definitely going to come to that next week. And it might take us two weeks to get through postmodernism. Human beings can know both the world around them and God himself because... This is a huge because. Don't miss it. The only reason why we're able to know anything, including God or ourselves, is because 
God has built into them the capacity to do so. That's the answer. Now, the naturalist philosophers don't like that when J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig and these other Christians assert that. But then we come back and say, but wait a minute. We have good authority to think that, number one, in the Bible. But number two, we have good authority because that's what we intuit. That's our intuition tells us that. We just know because we have the capacity to know. God has built into us the capacity to know things and because he takes an active role in communicating with them. Now, depending on how fundamental or how charismatic of a church background you come from, that last part of that statement could be taken in a couple of ways. Let me just steer around any questions that might come from that direction and say that quite simply, God communicates to us through his word and through our experiences and through our knowledge. There's more to that that will come in uh, four or five weeks. Uh, I don't know how long this sermon, this series is going to be. I guess until you all get tired of me and you never come back and then I'll know I need to stop. Uh, Okay, so then if we can know something about the world around us, how can we know what is right and wrong? This is another statement that needs some unpacking. Ethics is transcendent. We talked a few minutes ago about God being transcendent. He is separate. He is above. He is altogether different than the cosmos, everything that is created in this matter and energy. And in this case, uh, the finite human spirit we have as well. Ethics is transcendent, and in this case, he's talking about transcendence from the thing that is compared to, and that is culture itself. That is the interaction among individuals in a society and societies or cultures together themselves. Ethics is transcendent and is based upon the character of God as good. In other words, he is holy and loving. One of the questions that philosophers like to ask is they'll say something along the lines of, well, is murder wrong because God doesn't like murder? He gives us a command. Or is murder wrong just because um, it, it's arbitrary? He could choose uh, tomorrow to make murder right. Well, what we say in this case is no ethics is based on the character of God. It is who he is. And then your naturalist or postmodern friend is going to jump on that and they're going to come at you with the idea, aha, okay. But now what you're saying to us, what they're saying to us, is that um, you're, I, I lost my train of thought. Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Uh, Ethics is based upon the character of God. It's based upon who God is. uh, And his commands come out of that. I'm sorry, my brain just... Ask me later, I might remember. Um, But we will be spending uh, several weeks on that because after we get through the worldview segment, 
what I really want to emphasize then is how do we make decisions based upon this worldview? And we'll look at three systems of making decisions, and obviously we'll come to the Christian uh, ethical system as well. Okay, number seven, what is the meaning of human history? Human history is linear. Now, everybody in the United States has heard of reincarnation. And reincarnation is this idea that you can keep kind of going through history and it just kind of keeps circling around and around. I'm being overly simplistic. If you have any education in that, you know I am. uh, And I'm not, I can't take time for everything. So, but, and what the naturalist is going to say is history is linear. It starts in point A and goes to point B, but it's meaningless. Ultimately, all the stars are going to die down. Everything's going to be done. And history is ultimately going to be meaningless. But what we say is history is linear and it's a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes for humanity. You don't have to be depressed because you can know you have a great God who loves you and will never leave you and forsake you or forsake you and that he is intimately interested in your life and ultimately if you love God, all things will work out for your good. And if you understand that, you've understood more than most of the people in the history of mankind. Now, question number eight. Question number eight, Sire threw into his latest edition of his book, and he says this. He asks, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? And I want to emphasize consistent. Again, when we get to our ethics part of this, we're going to be spending three weeks on it, but I want to at least throw it out to you. And that is because most naturalists, most people who intentionally hold these views, now I'm not talking about just the average person who doesn't look into this. I'm talking about the Stephen Hawking's. I'm talking about uh, the, um, oh, I picture his face. Um, some of these evolutionists, when you look at them, they're mostly moral-ish kind of people. They're not your axe murderers. They're not your uh, people who are just going wickedly crazy. Now, unfortunately, their ideas filter down, and the people who really don't think about these things do abominable things in large part because of these worldviews. But their ethics are inconsistent. Their ethics are inconsistent. And what that means is they will borrow from the Christian culture, the remnants of the Christian culture around them to say things like, well, lying is wrong. Wait a minute. From a purely naturalistic point of view, lying is not wrong. Lying is just, it is. Well, That may be, but I don't want people lying to me. Oh, okay. Well, you don't want people lying to you, but on what basis? Because you have a tank in your backyard? So then, you know, you get into the uh, argumentum ad boculum or argument with the big stick. 
And that was Mao Zedong's argument. Don't argue with me because I have a big stick. But we say that Christian theists seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. When Jesus and John the Baptist before him said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What they're saying, let me translate what they're saying. They're saying, Repent, change your mind, undergo a fundamental shift in your mind. Stop being a naturalist or a postmodernist and become a Christian theist. I've been waiting for this because that's part of my justification for doing this. You need to change your mind. You need to be one who repents, changing the way you're thinking. And when you change the way you're thinking, all of a sudden you're going to look at this sin that you've enjoyed for all these years and you're going to go, oh, that's vomit. And you're going you're gonna to want to drop it. You're going to want to get away from it. That's why repenting involves turning away from sin because it involves changing your mind. And when Jesus and John the Baptist say, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what they're talking about is it's at hand. It's near you. It's available. It's ready for you to pick up. You can touch it. It's at hand. It's right next to you. It's here. And if, my friends, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, where God wants done, gets done, is ready at your hand. You can grab it. You can accept it. You can receive it from the Lord. And that is, you will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Again, I would have worded that a little bit differently Myself, but there's James Shire's view. So now what I want to look at, and I'm going to do this very quickly. I wrote down the verses and I wrote down the statements for you so you can uh, take this home. But I wanted to uh, say, okay, well then, how does this Christian God, if we are Christian theists, we believe in a Christian God, how does he impact your daily life? Given what we've looked at as to what it means to have a Christian view of what's going on in the world, I came up with three statements, and I chose these significantly because I want to show you how well related the statements you've been hearing for months and months and months and years how related they are. And the first one is the one you've heard me say over and over and over again, and that is trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. That is the definition of faith. That is what faith, that's what Christianity boils down to. And I want to look at a verse you've never seen before, and that's in Philippians chapter 3. Thank you. Did only one person get that? Somebody else got that, right? This is the verse we looked at this morning. This is the passage we looked at this morning. But I want to show you how related these concepts that Pastor Benji and I and others are trying to have in your head. Paul writes here, he says, Not not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. It's this promise of the resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, trusting the promises that God has forgiven me of my past, and straining forward to what lies ahead, trusting the promise that God is going to complete in me the things that he said he would, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. This is it right here. I'm trusting the promise. When you can say that you trust that God is going to come through on his promises for you, when you have really this kind of worldview, then that's going to cause you to press on. And people are going to look at you and say, man, that guy's life is different. He is pressing on. He's trusting God's promises. He actually believes, crazy guy, he actually believes that God's going to come through on what he said he was going to come through on. Amen? Now, let me put this in a slightly different way. Same ideas. I want, you to, I want you to understand this. I'm putting it in different words, but it's same, similar ideas. How does this Christian God impact your daily life? We do it by living like Christ is more important than anything and everything. My favorite passage for these, along these lines is Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, Jaman found and covered up, then in his joy. I love that. Catch everything he does next. He's absolutely stoked. He's going, yes. Actually, he's trying to hold himself back so people don't see what he's doing when he's buying this field with everything that he has. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field that has the treasure in it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christ is more valuable than anything and everything you have. How many of you have known people who have lost their home to a fire and everything in their, everything in their house burned down. One friend of ours left with his car, his uh, phone, his personal phone book, and his wife. Everything else was completely gone. You know, Ted and Doris were pretty happy that they had that much, amen? Because what, what is really important when you get to that? Your wife, your husband, Everything you have will one day be taken from you. Everything you've ever gained, everything you will gain, will one day be absolutely taken from you. Don't you want the pearl of great price, the great treasure hidden in the field? Sell everything you have if you have to, to get it. That is the kind of person that trusts the promises of God. That is the kind of person who understands the true value of things. That is the kind of person who looks at the world like this. Now, I went into Pastor Benji's office earlier this week, and I said, okay, you got to give me your favorite passage on the rehearsing the gospel to yourself. Because... Preaching this good news to yourself is the way that we go about living like Christ is more important than everything. It's the way that we go about living so that people see that we're trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. And uh, he, he started listing a whole bunch of verses. I said, okay, wait, wait, wait. I just need one. 
I, I gave you two, the, the first two he gave me, and they're in your, your notes, but this is the one I took for our notes, and that's 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Now that was true in the first century because I hadn't been born yet. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Your sins, my friends, are forgiven. When you trust the promises of God for you in Christ, when you live like Christ is more valuable than anything and everything, when that change has fundamentally happened in your heart, Your sins are forgiven. You don't have to look backwards. You can look forward. In verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. My friends, I would suggest that you take these home and you look through the notes. You know what? Some of the wording I'm not even perfectly comfortable with, I wanted to give you as... uh, I guess he's not a doctor, I don't think. Uh, James Shire gave it in his book. I, wrote, I gave the book title on the first page. Go over it. Some of it you might want to change a little bit. But take it, learn it, understand it, so that you can know what it means, what the Bible teaches of the world looks like. And then go over these promises. And again, the reason why I did it this way is because I want you to see how interrelated they are and how close uh, all these concepts that we repeat to you every Sunday morning and evening are. And then go in confidence, knowing that you have the best way of looking at the world available to you, whether or not you're right, because you won't be right on everything. I'm not right on everything. But go in confidence so that you can explain this to people who are around you. Right now, let's ask for grace to do that. Lord, I pray that you would indeed give us grace to understand your word so that we can understand your world. And then, Lord, I pray that you would also give us humble, gracious hearts so that when we teach these concepts to others, we can help them understand rather than put them off. And then, Lord God Almighty, I pray that you would help us to understand so that our own hearts will be fundamentally molded and shaped to be like your heart for your good, for your glory, and for our good. Bless us, Jesus, so that we can be a blessing. In Jesus' name. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.